we're back, let's talk a little bit more about uh, John F. Kennedy, 50 years on. We've gotten some positive feedback uh, for talking about this. would note a letter by Michelle sent a few days ago saying, Hey, Doug, I loved last Thursday's show all about the Kennedy assassination. Keep up the good work. I was just a small child when it happened, and I've always been fascinated by it. It was the first time I started to think something smelled in our government. P.S. I wish you'd talk about great whistleblowers like Eric Snowden. I think he's a hero who has let us all know what the government's up to. It's always a worthy topic. Well, thanks for that, Michelle. And uh, we are intending to talk about Edward Snowden. In my right hand right now is a great piece by Ken Auletta from The New Yorker, dated October 7th. We'll try and get to that on today's program. If we don't, we will get to it. We've joked uh, on this program that, you know, uh, what's impending is the second I don't know, maybe it's the 10th assassination of John Kennedy, in this case going after his character. And something that always seems to surface in conjunction with that is some sort of crackpot goofball theory about Lee Harvey Oswald. There's apparently a new book out titled The Interloper, Lee Harvey Oswald Inside the Soviet Union by someone named Peter Savodnik. Just a quote from the piece in The Economist about it. Plenty of lurid speculation surrounds Oswald's decision as a 19-year-old former Marine to go to the Soviet Union. Some have pointedly wondered why he visited the Soviet and Cuban consulates in Mexico City shortly before he shot the president. Mr. Savodnik coolly dismisses those who see machinations in the story. Well, when we get Jefferson Morley on this program and talk about some of those machinations, I think you'll see that they're not figments of anyone's imagination. But I love also uh, what the creative Mr. Savodnik has come up with about Oswald in Russia. He says that uh, when he went to Moscow... He was horrified to find the Soviets did not want him. He did not know any secrets. But in fact, as a radar operator, Oswald was aware of the heights flown by our top spy plane, the U-2. That could have proved very interesting to the Soviets. In fact, as we mentioned in last week's program, Francis Gary Powers, the man who was shot down in the famous U-2 incident, said that uh, the Russians may have known how to get a beat on him with some help from Oswald. We also note with some sadness that uh, there's actually a decent piece out currently in the media by Anthony Summers. Summers is one of the best authors in the Kennedy case. And um, unfortunately, the curious article he wrote is not in U.S. News and World Report. It's not in Vanity Fair. It's not even in Rolling Stone. It's in the National Enquirer. We would note that in the piece, Dr. Cyril Wecht who's described as the world-famous medical examiner who spent decades studying the assassination, said, quote, based on the available medical, physical, and photographic evidence, all of which I've examined multiple times, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy was carried out by two gunmen, not just Lee Harvey Oswald. And unfortunately for all of us, the National Enquirer published two photos taken of the assassination and uh, shows the wrong location in both of them which, by the way, differ from one another over where the uh, grassy knoll assassin had to have been. We'll talk about this in future programs. Let's take a few minutes to talk about the piece by Robert Dalek in the Atlantic Special Edition Commemorative Issue on Kennedy. Its title is JFK versus the Military. In referring to some of Kennedy's most notable achievements, Dalek said, by persuading the Soviet leader, Khrushchev, to remove missiles from Fidel Castro's Cuba and agree to a ban on nuclear tests in the atmosphere, underwater, and in outer space, Kennedy avoided a nuclear war and 
kept radioactive fallout from the air and oceans, thereby earning the country's enduring regard for his effectiveness as a crisis manager and negotiator. But less recognized is how much both of these agreements rested on Kennedy's ability to rein in and sidestep his own military chiefs. Noted Dalek, from the start of his presidency, Kennedy feared that the Pentagon brass would overreact to Soviet provocations and drive the country into disastrous nuclear conflict. The Soviets might have been pleased, or understandably frightened, to know that Kennedy distrusted America's military establishment almost as much as they did. The Joint Chiefs of Staff reciprocated the new president's doubt. Chairman Lyman Lemnitzer made no secret of his discomfort with a 43-year-old president who he felt could not measure up to Dwight Eisenhower, the former five-star general. Lemnitzer was a West Point graduate who had risen in the ranks of Eisenhower's World War II staff and helped plan the successful invasions of North Africa and Sicily. To Kennedy, Lemnitzer embodied the military's old thinking about nuclear weapons. The president thought a nuclear war would bring mutually assured destruction. Mad, in the shorthand of the day, while the Joint Chiefs believed the United States could fight such a conflict and win. In addition to the Army's Lemnitzer, the Navy's Admiral Arleigh Burke didn't get along with Kennedy too well. He was an anti-Soviet hawk who believed that U.S. military officials needed to intimidate Moscow with threatening rhetoric. Kennedy was barely in the White House when one of uh, Burke's prospective speeches was brought to him. Kennedy looked at it and ordered the Admiral to back off and required all military officers on active duty to clear any public speeches with the White House. Kennedy did not want officers thinking they could speak or act however they wished. Peace notes that Kennedy's biggest worry about the military was not the personalities involved, but rather the freedom of field commanders to launch nuclear weapons without explicit permission from the commander-in-chief. Holy Dr. Strangelove. Kennedy learned from his national security advisor, McGeorge Bundy, that his subordinate commander, faced with a substantial Russian military action, could start the thermonuclear holocaust on his own initiative. As Roswell Gilpatrick, Kennedy's deputy defense secretary, recalled, we became increasingly horrified over how little positive control the president really had over the use of this great arsenal of nuclear weapons. To counter the military's willingness to use such weapons, Kennedy pushed the Pentagon to replace Eisenhower's strategy of massive retaliation with what he called flexible response, a strategy of calibrated force. Turned out that NATO commanders uh, General Loris Norstead and two Air Force generals, Curtis LeMay and Thomas Power, stubbornly opposed White House directives that reduced their authority to decide when to go nuclear. To quote from Dalek, General Power was openly opposed to limiting the use of America's ultimate weapons. Why are you so concerned with saving their lives? He asked the lead author of a Rand Corporation study that counseled against attacking Soviet cities at the outset of a war. Quote, the whole idea is to kill the bastards. At the end of the war, if there are two Americans and one Russian, we win. It was noted that even Curtis LeMay, who was Power's superior, described him as, quote, not stable and, quote, unquote, a sadist. But Nalick notes, the 54-year-old LeMay, known as Old Iron Pants, wasn't that much different. In World War II, LeMay had been the principal architect of the incendiary attacks by B-29 heavy bombers that destroyed a large swath of Tokyo and killed about 100,000 Japanese. And, he was convinced, shortened the war. LeMay had no qualms about striking in enemy cities where civilians would pay for their government's misjudgment in picking a fight with the United States. 
During the Cold War, Curtis LeMay was prepared to launch a preemptive nuclear first strike against the Soviet Union. Dalek notes that Ted Sorensen, Kennedy's speechwriter and alter ego, called Curtis LeMay my least favorite human being. Peace notes the strains between the generals and their commander-in-chief showed up in exasperating ways when McGeorge Bundy asked the Joint Chiefs of Staff Director for a copy of the blueprint for nuclear war. The general at the other end of the line said, we never released that. (laughs) Bundy explained, I don't think you understand. I'm calling for the president, and he wants to see it. Dalek notes the chief's reluctance was understandable. Their joint strategic capabilities plan foresaw the use of 170 atomic and hydrogen bombs in Moscow alone, along with the destruction of every major Soviet, Chinese, and Eastern Europe city, telling up hundreds of millions of deaths. Sickened by a formal briefing on the plan, Kennedy turned to a senior administration official and said, and we call ourselves the human race. The piece then goes into the story of uh, the Bay of Pigs, and uh, doesn't really talk much about how the CIA planned this whole operation from bases in Latin America. But uh, I can tell you, based on recent reading, that uh, the CIA and the Pentagon were quite confident when, that when push came to shove, Kennedy was going to allow airstrikes uh, on the, uh, uh, to save the effort to invade at the Bay of Pigs. But Kennedy stuck to his guns and said, no, that wasn't the deal. Curiously, back when the CIA engineered uh, what was the blueprint for the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, which was the, uh, the 1954 invasion of Guatemala to overthrow the elected government there. And as it turned out, things did not get off to a good start. The CIA went to President Eisenhower and said, we need air support. Eisenhower asked, what are the odds of success? And they said, oh, about 20%. If we don't have air, air support, however, 0%. Supposedly, that honest estimate convinced Ike to let the U.S. Uh, participate in this little covert op war, which ultimately was successful. Kennedy, however, wasn't going for it, and the CIA then blamed him for their failed invasion. In fact, they still do. Anyway, I recommend you read this piece by Robert Dalek. Near the end, it notes that Kennedy told guests at the White House, the first thing I'm going to tell my successor is to watch the generals and to avoid feeling that just because they were military men, their opinions on military matters were worth a damn. I think you may understand at this point, dear listener, why it was that some powerful people in this country weren't that happy with the 35th president. All right, I'd like to talk about the piece uh, on Edward Snowden. and Actually, the piece is really about The Guardian which uh, went forward publishing some of the, um, the items that Snowden had, but we just don't have time today. So let's instead talk a bit about vice, in this case, uh, drugs and gambling. Apparently the drug enforcement agency just can't help themselves. They want to play doctor. And as a result of a lot of lobbying by the uh, DEA, The Food and Drug Administration last week recommended tighter controls on how doctors prescribe the most commonly used narcotic painkillers. Of course, this piece by Barry Meyer, reprinted from the New York Times, is interesting in that it uses the word narcotics throughout. These opiate pain relievers can be called narcotics, but that is the term generally used by police agencies for heroin and and such things. But the piece notes that changes coming up are going to reduce the number of refills patients can get before going back to their doctor. Patients are also going to be required to take a prescription of the pharmacy rather than have a doctor call it in. And the DEA-friendly piece notes that prescription drugs account for about three-quarters of all drug overdose deaths in the United States, 
with the number of deaths from narcotic painkillers or opioids quadrupling since 1999, according to federal data. Peace notes that for years, FDA officials had rejected recommendations from the DEA and others for stronger prescribing controls on the drugs, saying the action would create undue hardships for patients, which it will. A number of doctors' groups, including the AMA and pharmacy organizations, have continued to fight these restrictions. Peace also quotes Dr. Janet Woodcock, director of the DEA's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, who said that uh, these are very difficult trade-offs our society has to make. The reason we approve these drugs is for people in pain, but we can't ignore the epidemic on the other side. Well, I don't want to downplay this. It is, it is true that people do abuse narcotic slash opioid pain relievers. On the other hand, so many patients were being denied medications that they needed to make uh, their end-of-life suffering better that uh, people finally had to step in and loosen the uh, restrictions that were in place when I completed medical school, and that was a step in the right direction. I do want to perhaps note at this point that uh, the opinions heard on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. Also on a site in passing, Peace in the Sacramento News Review by David Downs about how the feds and the media are now are saying that marijuana kills forests, rivers, and animals. Peace asks, well, is prohibition what's really to blame? Yeah, I just get tired of all this. There's a thing about pot farms and our national forests run by Mexican drug gangs or just killing beaver. The people that are most concerned about this currently don't seem to be uh, in favor of um, relaxing legal prohibitions against cannabis, which is kind of an odd disconnect. All right, final item from the Vice Department, piece by Stephen Maganini in the B from, I don't know, a month or two ago caught my eye. I've had it sitting on the kitchen table, meaning to get to it for some time, and I guess today's the day. It was an interview with a man named Paul Cornish. Posing the question, do you ever wonder about your chances of winning on the slot machines at Red Hawk, Thunder Valley, Cash Creek, Jackson, or other area Indian casinos? Well, no. No, actually, I haven't. Because I've taken some statistics in my lifetime and know that the odds are crappy. But uh, this piece talks about you know how it is you can win at the slot machines. Citing the authority of Paul Cornish, described as director of casino operations for Chuk Chansi Gold Resort and Casino in Coarse Gold, north of Fresno, which has reportedly 1,700 slot machines. Well, let's just, let's just follow the give and take of this piece. Do you play slots yourself? And if you do, which ones and how much? Said Mr. Cornish, I generally play video poker, and I am not a big player. I might occasionally try a specialty theme machine such as Wheel of Fortune, Star Wars, or CSI. When is it time to switch machines or casinos? Cornish, if the machine becomes boring or I begin to lose interest, I look for another machine to try. I consider going to a casino to be an entertainment experience when I no longer enjoy or have fun at a casino it is time to try another casino. <laughs> to which we would point out, well, yes, there are other options as well. And as much as I'd like to jump into the Reader's Digest, what the gambling industry won't tell you piece from earlier uh, this year, we we're out of time. We need to take a break, come back and talk about Orson Welles and his famous War of the World broadcast and maybe do a couple obituaries. Stick around. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax. 